Okay, podcast listeners, I know what you've been thinking. How do you have a series about the natural history of our planet and not talk about dinosaurs? Well, never fear. If you've seen the first Jurassic Park movie, and who hasn't seen the first Jurassic Park movie? There's a character played by Sam Neill, Dr. Alan Grant. He's a paleontologist hired as part of a research team to come evaluate the InGen project. Well, today I think we have the man who InGen would actually call the real Dr. Alan Grant. Well, his name's Dr. Thomas Carr. He's one of the leading experts on tyrannosaurs of all kinds, including T-Rex. He's a member of the biology faculty at Carthage College in Wisconsin. He's an advisor to the Dinosaur Discovery Museum of Kenosha, Wisconsin. He's had multiple scholarly articles, including in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. He's appeared in the National Geographic Channel documentaries T-Rex Walks Again and Dinosaurs Decoded, and both of those episodes featured his original research and fieldwork on T-Rex. He's also written articles for popular publications, such as Rotunda and Dinosaur World, and he's currently working on The Tyrant Lizards. This is going to be the reference volume on tyrannosaurs. So we've got a heavy hitter today in the dinosaur world, and it is with great pleasure and anticipation that I welcome Dr. Thomas Carr to Know Thyself. Dr. Carr, thank you for being on the program. Well, thanks for having me on. So I have a question. I went last night in preparation for this interview. I had to go see the new Jurassic Park. (laughs) Have you seen that? No, I have not. Now, was that a conscientious objection, or was that just because you haven't gone to see it? It's a conscientious objection. I shouldn't take such things personally, but in the first Jurassic World, the director, as I recall, was adamant or obstinate about not featuring correct dinosaurs, and the main example being that the raptors wouldn't have feathers uh, yet again. And we know, we've known since 1996, that feathers are ancestrally present in the pterosaur dinosaur group. Uh, Many dinosaurs did did reverse from feathers and went back to scales like pteranosaurs, but we know that animals like Velociraptor and its close kin like Deinonychus were really feathery. They had a full plumage. They even had secondary feathers on their arms, possibly primaries as well, even though they were flightless. So um, it was a conscientious objection, uh, first time around, and also the second. I'm just grumpy, I guess. (laughs) You said something very interesting, if I understood you correctly. You said tyrannosaurs had feathers and reverted to scales? Yes. And this is a phenomenon that is seen multiple times in dinosaur evolution, uh, where the ancestral stock is feathery, and then the descendants reverse back to scales. So it seems to be an easy move for dinosaurs. So for tyrannosaurs, we know that the basal ones uh, did have a full plumage, uh, small ones and big ones. But in recent years, we've learned that the advanced tyrannosaurids, T-Rex and its ilk, were scaly. And we see the same sort of thing in other dinosaur lineages, including the sauropods, the big long necks, that is, like things like Brachiosaurus from, from Jurassic World, and also bird-hip dinosaurs like Triceratops and the big duckbills like Parasaurolophus, they also reverted from feathers to a scaly condition. We don't know exactly where along, that, along the line that happened, 
But we do have uh, very primitive bird hip dinosaurs, plant eaters, uh, that did have full plumage as well. Uh, so that a reversal had to have happened somewhere down the line. So I guess the big question that comes to my mind is why? Why develop feathers in the first place uh, only to give them up down the road? Yeah, I think the prevailing view is that uh, feathers are insulatory, uh, like fur, and so when you have the evolution of warm-bloodedness, uh, you need to keep that heat uh, to keep the metabolic fires going during ambient temperature extremes. So along our line, the mammal line, you know, we see fur across the group in large part, but then we see many mammals, many large ones get rid of fur, so whales and elephants and rhinos being obvious examples. And I think in an, in an analogous way, it might have something to do with size, uh, where it's just too costly to conserve that heat or it's too costly to produce feathers. Or maybe there's some combination of the two and we just see a loss of feathers uh, for, you know, scaly skin. So it's not difficult to lose insulation. And it is thought that the pterosaur dinosaur group were ancestrally warm-blooded. So they, you know, natural selection endowed them with feathers and there's a certain amount of flexibility whether or not the animals are stuck with feathers or not. So do you have any evidence of a dinosaur that gave up warm-bloodedness, that developed warm-bloodedness and then its descendants were not warm-blooded? I think that's a really good question and the answer to that would come from bone histology, taking a long bone of an animal and slicing it like a loaf of bread and grinding down that slice of bone so that light can pass through it. And what bone records is the life history of that individual. And so you can get a sense of growth rate, um, also chronological age, and other such information. So I think that a comparative study of growth rate from a histological point of view might uncover reversals to cold-bloodedness. Um, it's actually thought that crocodilians might have been ancestrally warm-blooded and secondarily reversed to cold-bloodedness. So I think that's the part of the sort of the tree of life that I'd start at. So a follow-up on that, is it more costly metabolically to maintain warm-bloodedness than it is cold-bloodedness? Would there be some benefit to being cold-blooded? Yeah, it is costly to be warm-blooded. You need to eat more. You have to have a more efficient uh, respiratory system. That's sort of at the level of the lungs and heart. Cold-bloodedness is a great way to save energy, you know, bottom line. But um, in certain circumstances, given the right conditions, that high-energy pathway is favorable. And so we did see warm-bloodedness evolve at least a couple times in the amniotes. That's the great group, the mammal reptile group. So we see this sort of thing happen on multiple occasions and there's, you know, obviously there's an advantage to both strategies. I do want to pick your brain a little bit more about this movie. First of all, were Mosasaurs really 600 feet long? Goodness, no. <laughs> um, they probably topped out around 50. Um, see, the issue for me, the bottom line is that Images are information, and whether a director likes it or not, uh, when people sit down to see a film that is somewhat rooted in fact, the audience will not be able to distinguish where fantasy ends and fact begins and vice versa. So when it comes to deliberately showing animals 
extinct animals that we know very well, when those are depicted inaccurately that run against the facts, there's, you know, only a specialist would know that. And in the meantime, the public is necessarily ignorant of what they're seeing. That rubs me the wrong way because people will leave the theater thinking that mosasaurs are stupendously huge. Raptors, you know, don't have feathers. Uh, Ankylosaurs have flexible tails and so on. So I think it's a real issue that filmmakers have to yield to, and that is that images are information, and unless people are told otherwise, they won't know whether or not they're seeing fantasy or fact. And with Jurassic World, the assumption on the public side, and it's a sensible one, is that they're going to see accurate dinosaurs. It's assumed that if the movie's showing dinosaurs and what's being depicted corresponds or maps onto the truth in some way, and that's not always the case, and I do have an issue with that. It's one thing if they were doing it out of ignorance, but they seem to make a conscious artistic decision. For me, the bottom line is, does blue correspond to what the most recent science thinks these animals look like? And the answer is a clear no, and there's no reason for that. Maybe it's continuity of character. When the first Jurassic Park came out and the lizards, I mean, see, the the raptors were lizard-like and scaly. Maybe now we have new information that indicates they're not, and so they just wanted to stay in character and not confuse people by giving them feathers. People weren't that stupid. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, there's a really simple way of keeping up with the science, and that is that, you know, the corporation behind the dinosaurs in general, whatever it is now, presumably they would keep looking for DNA. They'd keep looking for ancient mosquitoes with dinosaur blood in them. With each film, they could update their dinosaurs to the science and just in terms of the narrative of the story, hey, we found these missing segments of DNA and now we've got a more accurate picture of what dinosaurs look like. I mean, that's simple. Why not do that? And actually, that would prevent the need to insert completely make-believe dinosaurs like Indoraptor and Indominus, which correspond to nothing. <laughs> and so the draw for each successive film is for people to see, well, what's the next updated dinosaur going to be? You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, I've just seen the trailers for Jurassic World, and a couple of dinosaurs actually look really good. They actually uh, went the full nine yards. The Carnotaurus looks fantastic, and the Allosaurus looks good, too. So why not do that for all of them if the information's there? It's a funny thing, because the first couple times I saw the, the trailer, I didn't even notice that those animals were actually quite accurate. You think of this steady progress of evolution from scales to feathers and so forth, and the fact that these accoutrements are merely shed in response to changing conditions or lack of need for them is something I didn't even know. The important thing to keep in mind about natural selection and sort of the grand sweep of life on this planet is that Natural selection uh, does diversify, but it doesn't optimize. So it doesn't make, you know, perfect organisms because the bottom line is the environment is constantly changing and the genome of the organisms have to keep up with a very unstable, at least on large time scales, fairly, a fairly unstable stage. And so you will see features come in and go away as long as they're still in the genome, as long as they're still uh, in the developmental program, they can be re-expressed later. It's best not to think of natural selection and evolution as as progressive as heading toward any particular endpoint. 
it's basically a story of populations just trying to keep up with the changes happening around them. You know, I was reading the work of a philosopher of science, and his name escapes me now. And he was talking about how the worldview all through the Middle Ages and even up into modern times was that there is this ladder of being. And human beings sit atop that ladder as the apex, the culmination of all these processes, the most perfected and final product. And he said yeah. that that's just not an accurate depiction of how it's looked yeah. at anymore. Yeah, not in the least. And this is one thing that I try to convey to my students uh, whenever the topic of the evolution of intelligence or consciousness comes up. And, you know, the bottom line is that we had the first basic systems for interpreting and reacting to information for about half a billion years. So before that time, it was mostly algae and very simple organisms. Then we had the Cambrian explosion where we had, you know, basically all the major uh, lineages established coming onto the scene. And you had, you know, across the board, animals with neurons. And so the experiment has been running for about 530 million years, and only once has intelligence or consciousness of our sort ever evolved. And so it's not certainly not inevitable because that experiment has been run constantly across multiple lineages for, you know, half a billion years, and we only have one species that's capable of querying the universe. And certainly high intelligence has evolved in other organisms like elephants and whales and, you know, birds like crows and ravens, but none of them query the universe. None of them make any effort to understand it. Uh, so certainly the view of evolution being a ladder toward our type of consciousness um, just collapses in view of, of the last half billion years. You know, and another sobering thought is the fact that of all our large brain nearest relatives, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, mm -hmm. all those, we're the only ones left. So if intelligence yeah. really was this sine qua non, or this without which you can't survive, then why wouldn't all of these other large-brained apes still be on the planet with us? That's a very good question, and I know that there are paleoanthropologists and physical anthropologists trying to answer that. Um, I do on occasion teach a human evolution course at Carthage and unfortunately we don't spend too much time uh, considering why our closest relatives went extinct. It's an intriguing question and it is one that, that demands an answer. Well let me go back to another question about this movie and I'm hoping this will sure. be a little bit of a trigger for you also. What is it about dinosaurs? Okay that makes them so perfect for military applications in all these movies? Well, they're big, mean, and tough as nails. <laughs> they're basically souped-up crocodiles. And so from that point of view, it does make sense uh, to go that route. They just don't uh, seem I'm not saying that it's ethical, yeah. but it does make sense. It seems to me, though, that if you wanted to weaponize some organism, it'd be a lot cheaper to make it a virus or a bacteria or maybe a honey badger or something like that. <laughs> Instead of going through all the business of cloning dinosaurs out of amber and then cloning them into some kind of military application. It's such a common trope in these movies. It is. And then at the end of the movie, and I don't want to give it away, so sure. spoiler alert, but they let yeah. about, I don't know, 12, 14 dinosaurs, Triceratops, a Stegosaurus, they let these dinosaurs out 
of their confinement into the world. And then the last scene, you see Jeff Goldblum lamenting the fact that dinosaurs have now been unleashed on the planet, and he doesn't know who's going to survive. Is it going to be humans, or are the dinosaurs going to wipe us out? Take home there is that these dinosaurs are the greatest survival threat to humans on the planet. I find well, I have a couple <laughs> issues with that. Uh, the first is, if they're only releasing you know, a dozen or a couple dozen individual species of dinosaur, and there's no population available to for those dinosaurs to establish themselves. I mean, they'll just die. And also, I think the past couple centuries has been ample evidence of our utterly destructive nature. And I think if dinosaurs were around today in sort of the manner of Jurassic Park, and they've got into the wild, they wouldn't stand a chance against us. We're just utterly destructive. And, you know, witness what's happening with elephants, uh, with rhinos and, and whales. It's, um, you know, I think it speaks for itself that that line of thought is just completely uh, unsupported by what our actual behavior results in upon other large animals on this planet. Yeah, I don't. it doesn't seem like many megafauna fare very well once humans invade their space. So you're saying a single triceratops could not take over Novato, California? <laughs> I'd be very surprised. I think I'd just probably be happy munching in someone's backyard. Okay. Sure. Yeah, it sounds a little naive. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Let's go back now. How did you become a paleontologist? Well, it goes back to very early childhood. According to my mother, I was first interested in dinosaurs when I was two years old. Apparently, that was based on a book or books. So the interest started there. And, you know, just taking a step back from this, uh, we have to admit that culturally, uh, dinosaurs get very good press. Uh, so dinosaurs are, are pitched to children very effectively. I do think they are intrinsically interesting, uh, but they're certainly presented that way to us at the very beginning. So we're already captivated in a way. But beyond that, I was interested in dinosaurs until my early teens, and then that faded in favor of sharks. And then National Geographic published a cover story, I think in 1978, on dinosaurs, and that helped push me back into that interest. And when I was 18, I volunteered to dig up dinosaurs in Alberta under the auspices of the Royal Tyrrell Museum, which was just the Tyrrell Museum at that time. And I also started volunteering at the uh, paleontology lab, the vertebrate paleontology lab at the Royal Ontario Museum, uh, prepping out dinosaur bones. And so at around that time uh, in Alberta, I felt like I had arrived at my life. I recall having a, an epiphany. I was just walking through camp, and it seemed like everything crystallized and locked into position, and I could see what my life was ahead of me. You know, I thought this was the, the route forward. And so I never looked back. And then in 1988, I decided that I would study tyrannosaurs. I was very interested in tyrannosaurs and the dromaeosaurids. That's a group that includes Velociraptor, Deinonychus, animals like that. And the decision happened uh, one afternoon. I was had in front of me a monograph on Deinonychus, uh, sort of a classic descriptive work by John Ostrom, and a fairly infamous publication on an infamous 
Tyrannosaur called Nanotyrannus. I realized that Tyrannosaurus had a really good sample size. Uh, back then, Dromaeosaurids weren't known for many fossils. And so I committed to Tyrannosaurus at that moment. Uh, and that was uh, some time before I pursued these interests in university. So I think I was still in high school at the time. And maybe because of this sense of calling or your clarity of purpose, you've been very successful with Tyrannosaurids. I understand that you've named four new species or participated in the naming of four new species. Is that still up to date or have there been more? Yeah, I'm senior on four. Uh, so Apalachosaurus montgomeriensis from Alabama, Vistahia versicilii from New Mexico, Tratophonius curiae from Utah, and the most recent one from earlier this year, sorry, last year, uh, Displitosaurus horneri. And I've been co-author on a fifth. I wasn't seen, I wasn't lead on that study, but an animal called Aileramus altai, an Asian long-snouted tyrannosaur. So yes, I've been in the fortunate position to contribute to the number of tyrannosaurs on the tyrannosaur family tree. And as I look at the size and sometimes the rudimentary nature of the fossils that are dug up, I wonder mm -hmm. to myself, it, it must be so painstaking. How do you establish that you have a new species? Because I also read that you have actually shot down others who have thought they had a new species, but it turned out to be a dwarf or juvenile member of the same species. So how do you know it's the new species you're looking for? In my case... Uh, for Tyrannosaurus, way back in 1988, I realized that Tyrannosaurus had a good sample size. And that what that means is that most of the species are represented by multiple fossils, which include not only adults, but also subadults and juveniles. And so that gives us a fairly complete picture of the variation in a species. And variation is... The main thing that taxonomists and systematists have to deal with, and that's those of us who name species and try to recover their evolutionary relationships. So transfers are excellent, an excellent group to work with because of the sample size. And then we have growth theories. What I did for my master's was I studied a species called Albertosaurus libratus that has probably the biggest sample size and the greatest coverage of growth. I documented every single feature from every single bone of the skull and jaws and documented the differences from juveniles to subadults and adults. So I'd get a profile or the barcode with a fundamental pattern of growth in that species. And then I took that template, that growth template, and I examined uh, transfer specimens that were thought to be dwarfs. And so one of these is the Cleveland skull, which is on display at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. It's the name bearer of Nanotrenus. And when I visited Cleveland, when I first saw the skull, it was no different in general terms from any of the juvenile Albertosaurus. So there was evidence that it was a juvenile Tyrannosaur, not an adult. In addition to that, this little skull has all the key features that are seen in no other species of Tyrannosaur except T-Rex. Narrow snout, wide forehead, a very unique brain case, that's the bones that surround the brain, has sort of a very different orientation. You don't need to know the details. Um, but the bottom line is that we have 
a skull that looks like a juvenile and it has the features of adult T-Rex. Therefore, it's a juvenile T-Rex, and that means that Nanotrinus, this pygmy tyrant, is not a valid name. So the weight of evidence points toward a different hypothesis. And in addition to that, this little skull is found in the same area as T-Rex from rocks of exactly the same age. So in southeastern Montana, in rocks between 68 and 66 million years of age, uh, which is where T-Rex is found from as well. And so at the time, it represented the best specimen we had of a juvenile T-Rex. So I hope that gives you an idea of how the process works. For me, I had to establish a point of reference, you know, in terms of what the growth stage actually looks like based on a well-represented species, and then using that to compare with other species to see if they show the similar different features. So you didn't have the platonic form of T-Rex that you could compare it to handy. Again, it sounds very painstaking. It, it is. Uh, how long it, it, can it you spend studying a single new find, a new skull, for example? Usually months. And just to give you an idea of the amount of data, from a single skull, as of a couple years ago, I could pull about 8,000 bits of information out of one skull. And that's measurements and features. Add in the postcranial skeleton, all that stuff behind the skull, the number of data points jumps up to 11,000. Now, since that time, I've been continuing my research in museum collections, and I'm sure that those numbers have increased significantly, like probably around 1,000. So I'm constantly learning and relearning these animals and, and adding to that database with the purpose to break through the haze of variation and to arrive at signal, whether the signal is growth, like how do I recognize a juvenile from a subadult from an adult, and signal also includes the species differences, you know, how do I know which species I have. And it does take uh, a lot of work, a lot of time. It's very solitary work, but it's necessary to actually say something clear and objective about these organisms. You never get bored, do you? It's never boring because... You know, if, if you have, say, a bone from more than one individual on a table, there's a new discovery around every corner. And as a matter of fact, just last week I was at the Museum of the Rockies. They have a tremendous collection of T-Rex specimens, and I brought with me a specimen that, that my team collected. It's a forehead bone of a juvenile T-Rex. And I had that on the table next to a big subadult and a couple big adult T-Rexes. And, it, I, and I had the best time because it was two or three hours straight of finding a whole slew of new features that pertain to growth that we've never seen before. So it is, it is a tremendous joy. It can be a thrill and quite exhilarating. I want to narrow it down to tyrannosaurs. Sure. But before I do that, I wonder if I could ask you two kind of general questions that, have, that I've wondered about. The first is, there's this whole category of dinosaur. And I've never really known if it is a biologically determined category or if it's just kind of a folk category like bugs or shrubs. In terms of the science, names have meaning. And the meaning of names is that they identify lineages. A lineage is a single ancestor and all of its descendants living and extinct. And so a dinosaur is a member of a group of, of animals that descend from the same ancestor 
in which a number of key unique features have evolved. All dinosaurs will have those key features and no other organism will. When you say the word dinosaur as a scientist, you are talking about a specific lineage that's defined by specific features that all the descendants share. So the ancestral features might be slightly tweaked, but nonetheless, they'll be there. So when I say Tyrannosaur, I'm talking about a small lineage inside of the big dinosaur lineage. So lineages are nested, groups are nested. There's big groups that contain little groups. And the little group of Tyrannosaurs will possess or will express all those fundamental dinosaur features. So if we go all the way back, what is it, about 250 million years, something like that. You, yep. It's the Nyasasaurus, is that correct, as possibly the first dinosaur specimen? The interesting thing about ancestors is that they are necessarily hypothetical. And so an ancestors are, are identified after the fact, after we build a family tree of a group of organisms like dinosaurs. And... The basic way it works is we gather a whole bunch of anatomical features, we identify the ancestral condition, and we identify the descendant condition. We code those, run them in a very in special algorithms that recovers the family tree that's based on those coded features. What we get is a diagram that looks like a tree. In the trunk of the tree is where the ancestors are, and the species, like T-Rex, are the branches off to the side. So the species um, we have in hand, we can see them, but the ancestors are inferences. And so ancestors are hypothetical. They are represented by the features that define lineages. Individual species are not in practice identified as ancestral. In practice, we do not identify specific species as ancestral from one to the other, except in certain circumstances. You need two species or more that are each other's closest relatives, and they have to occur in time sequentially, so one before the next, without overlapping in time. And they also have to live in the same geographic area. They can't be on opposite sides of the world. As a matter of fact, uh, last year, I, my team and I proposed uh, direct ancestor-descendant relationships for a transaur called Displetosaurus, where we had an older species called Displetosaurus trosus, which is from Canada, and a later species from Montana called Displetosaurus horneri. They're each other's closest relatives. They are basically in the same geographic area, and they're successive in time. And so we proposed that Displeosaurus trosus evolved into Displeosaurus horneri. And that sort of hypothesis of anagenesis is what, is what this is called technically, is the exception and not the rule. And I guess DNA would really help establish these connections. It would. I mean, but... But DNA just isn't on the table for organisms that are millions of years old. Right. Um, as you know, DNA is an incredibly delicate molecule. It has to be, because uh, it has to be unzipped, it has to be copied, it has to be folded up and coiled and all that stuff. So DNA can last on a time scale of thousands of years, but not millions. Um, certainly, if 
DNA were a more hardy molecule, it would be a, another independent line of evidence to test that hypothesis, but it's just simply not available for us with these organisms. Of course, the whole premise of Jurassic Park is that they found DNA preserved in amber, but I yes. understand that amber would not preserve DNA. DNA has a half-life of 521 years, even in the best of circumstances. And so I read that after 16,000 years or so, all of those decay periods would result in yes. basically one intact base pair in the entire DNA. Yeah, so, you know, it's obvious that the, pre the premise of the films are, are pure fantasy. Um, although you do have some novel ideas out there for sort of bringing back dinosaurs in a sense by switching on uh, genes or alleles that are otherwise silent. Jack Horner, for example, has written a whole book on this called How to Build a Dinosaur, sort of by reverse engineering chickens to make a chickensaurus, uh, which is an interesting idea, and people are working on that. So I think the only way we're going to see dinosaurs come back is that route, that developmental uh, tweaking that Jack has proposed. Well, now what if somebody tried to weaponize a chickensaurus? This could put us all in a terrible situation. So... <laughs> I suppose. I think probably uh, the best possible outcome is you'd have chicken wings that come with toothpicks because <laughs> of the claws. Okay. You're one of the foremost experts on Tyrannosaurus, and I know you probably wouldn't say that about yourself, but from everything I can gather, you've spent years studying them. I want to try to learn from you what we do know about tyrannosaurs, even if it's a little bit speculative, how they actually looked, how their skin actually looked, yeah. their, if you can know anything about their behaviors, about their reproductive habits, you know, tyrannosaur mm -hmm. romance, if you know anything about their speed, their size, sure. those kind of questions are fascinating to me, and I think they'd be interesting to the audience as well. Well, in terms of the appearance of tyrannosaurs and their possible behavior, that stems directly from the Displetosaurus Horner Eye paper that uh, that your audience can freely download from uh, scientific reports. So you just have to search for the Splitosaurus Horner Eye and the paper will come up. Uh, we packed a lot into that article. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, so we established a new species. We proposed a hypothesis of its, of its growth series. We also hypothesized the life appearance of Tyrannosaurus. And also we proposed the anagenesis hypothesis of, of Horner Eye evolving from from Drosus. And so what we did in terms of life appearance, um, I've always noticed or taken notice of the texture of transfer faces. They're rough. If you ever go to a museum and look at transfer in the face, you'll see that their facial bones are, are coarse. And there's also a variety of textures. You can have sort of wrinkly textures and little pustule-like bumps and also weird elevations and, and horns that extend from the skull. And so the Horneri project was an opportunity to dig into that, and there's been some good work done on the life appearance of other dinosaurs. And the bottom line is that soft tissues modify bone. So bone isn't this um, unchangeable internal lattice of an organism. Uh, bones are, are actively shaped by the soft tissues that attach to them, and skin is no exception. It turns out that uh, transfers are a lot like crocodilians uh, in that they don't have uh, facial muscles covering their faces. That's a unique mammal thing.
thing for suckling, so our faces are weird that we're covered in this hood of mobile musculature. Not like that for dinosaurs or obviously crocodiles. Uh, the similarity between transors and crocs uh, was quite striking. Um, the textures are more similar between crocs and transors than between transors and other uh, quote-unquote um, reptiles like lizards and snakes. And it turns out that the textures that we see on, on crocodiles correspond to specific overlying integument. So the bottom line with crocs is it's largely a mask of flat scales. And we see the same texture in transors, therefore the soft tissue that overlaid their face would have been uh, flat scales as well. Top of the snout has these little bumps all over them, uh, these little pustules, and that's something that's seen in armor-like skin. And rhinoceros have such uh, features on their skulls as well, in addition to the platform for the horn. And also, transverse have these elevations that stick out from the sides of their skulls that match what we see on things like the horn coverings on animals like cattle and also the beaks of birds. So there's a rim and there's associated features that indicate a horny covering. So that's how we came up with the general appearance of Tyrannosaurus. Uh, in terms of behavior, uh, crocodiles become a model or a stand-in for Tyrannosaurus behavior. And that's because the similarity is so great uh, between the two organisms that uh, crocodiles become a, sort of a wonderful point of reference for hypothesizing about transfer behavior. So, for example, those flat scales in crocodilians have little bumps at the center, and these are called integumentary sensory organs, or ISOs for short. And they give crocodilians a very high sensitivity of touch, um, also temperature. And crocodilians are very essential uh, animals. Uh, they use their faces to communicate with each other. They rub each other with their snouts. Female crocodilians will monitor nests and try to locate nest sites by using their, their snouts to detect uh, a site of the right temperature and also monitor the temperature of a nest. Uh, we have no reason to think that transwords did not have ISOs as well. Um, and so if that's true, uh, then we should predict this, or we should expect that transfers have the same basic behaviors as crocodilians. And so that would mean that transfers like crocs would have rubbed snouts. Uh, they would have used their snouts to find places to, you know, lay their eggs, monitor, monitor their nests, possibly even pick up their hatchlings like crocodilians do, and transport them to someplace safe. So through this study, crocodilians immediately became very interesting to me, much more interesting than they had been before, in my view. And so I, I view them as, as models for the possibilities, possibilities of tyrannosaur behavior. How about the relative cranial capacities of crocodilians and tyrannosaurs? Similar? Yeah, they're compar they are similar. Uh, there's been some pretty good work uh, done on brain size in extinct animals like dinosaurs that's based on a very good uh, foundation of extant data, so based on living animals like crocodilians. It turns out that among reptiles, crocodilians and turtles have pretty big brains for their body size, 
And the same thing is true for Tyrannosaurus. And so the intellectual capacity is comparable between crocodilians and Tyrannosaurus, and that reinforces the notion that crocodilians are, are you know, pretty good models for Tyrannosaur behavior. Crocodilians are amphibious animals, and a lot of their behavior are, behaviors are tied to the water. So it's those behaviors that are not tied to the water that we could hypothesize for Tyrannosaurs. That's exactly what I was going to ask. How do we know then that Tyrannosaurs were not also aquatic? Well, uh, from various lines of evidence, uh, the proportions of the body, uh, Tyrannosaurs were running animals. Uh, they had very long legs and long feet. That's evidence of animals that were capable run runners. As a matter of fact, it's very difficult or challenging to identify the hind leg of a young Tyrannosaur from the hind leg of an adult ostrich mimic dinosaur like Gallimimus from Jurassic Park. That's how fleet Tyrannosaurids were. Uh, we do see a reduction in those running abilities as the animals get uh, bigger and older. The, the foot reduces relatively and shin reduces in length. Um, so they are definitely, from multiple lines of evidence, uh, tied to the land. It doesn't mean they were incapable of swimming, but they certainly weren't amphibious like crocodilians or other large meat-eating dinosaurs are thought to be like Spinosaurus. This is a big North African meat-eating dinosaur that actually has limb proportions that are broadly similar to that of a crocodile, very powerful forelimbs and fairly stumpy hind limbs, and even a a crocodile-like snout. So this is a whole lineage of, of meat eaters that seem to have taken on an, an amphibious lifestyle to hunt fish, and we don't see any of those adaptations in Tyrannosaurus. They're a very conservative group in terms of their overall bow plan and also their growth patterns, so bow plan meaning just their overall proportions and appearance and build. So Tyrannosaurus were definitely not amphibious animals, um, and so we should not expect to see uh, water-specific features of crocodilians, behaviors of crocodilians in Tyrannosaurs. But that leaves still quite a bit on the table to think about. I heard that there was a recent discovery of a triceratops skull that had Tyrannosaur mm -hmm. bite marks. The authors wrote that this could be evidence that the Tyrannosaurus had pulled the head right off of the triceratops. That study uh, examined several triceratops specimens and they found a pattern of score marks left by adult T-Rex teeth on the frill and skull of various triceratops, and they arrived at a hypothesis of possibility that T-Rex did remove the head of triceratops from the body and did it in a fairly specific way. So this would be broadly analogous to what crocodilians do. You know, when they're rendering a carcass, they'll grab a limb and roll in the water and do that multiple times to bite off hunks. So certainly uh, there's a pattern there that's a plausible explanation for it, and triceratops skulls are found all the time. And so we'll see if that pattern holds up or if, it needs, or if the hypothesis needs to be modified in some way. Were tyrannosaurs solitary or social, or basically just like crocodilians? My basic way I think about social behavior among dinosaurs is to bracket it. And that is to consider uh, the closest living relatives of crocodilians. Are they 
by and large social, so that's crocodilians. And yes, to some degree, they are fairly social animals. Sort of not to the degree, not to the degree of things like, you know, wolves and such, and mammals. But you know, they do aggregate in groups, and they, there are rules that they follow for interacting with each other. And also, we have to consider living dinosaurs. Are they by and large social as well? So that's the birds. And yes, birds are social. And so whatever social behaviors are shared between birds and living crocs, they inherited from their common ancestor, from which all crocs and dinosaurs descended. So there's no reason to think that T-Rex wasn't social as well. And all dinosaurs, for that matter, since the ancestry is the same. And certainly uh, for each species, you can sort of test that default hypothesis by looking at you know, various features of the bones or bite marks, that sort of thing. But that's how I set the default in thinking about things like behavior is based is rooted in common ancestry based on what we see in the living world. Okay. Were they warm-blooded or cold-blooded? Uh, warm-blooded. The growth rates uh, definitely show that. T-Rex grew up very quickly. Uh, they reached adult size in... I think about in less than 20 years, other dinosaurs had astonishingly high growth rates too. There's some duckbills that reached adult size 30 feet in eight years. So T-Rex wasn't unique. And this is a pattern that we generally see across dinosaurs when we do bone histology and get a handle on the growth rates. So tyrannosaurs were typical dinosaurs, uh, very uh, fast growth rates, and which is consistent with being warm-blooded. You just don't see growth rates like that in cold-blooded animals. And how long could they live? Do we know? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the short answer is no, we don't know, but we do know how old the oldest sampled T-Rex it was at the time of death, and that's Sue, uh, the famous T-Rex that's on display down at the Field Museum, which I'm actually going to go and see on Friday uh, for a study on T-Rex growth I'm working on. But... Uh, Sue was sampled histologically, and it has a chronological age of 28 years. And so we know that adult T-Rex got at least that old. Based on my own studies of T-Rex growth, uh, T-Rex did get older than that in terms of chronologically, in terms of years, but I don't know exactly what that number is. Um, I don't do histology, and there's another team that is looking into sampling a, a bigger set of transfers, including T-Rex. So that team will, will find out, but right now 28 years is the number we have. From my own research, I know that it was higher than it had to have been because Sue is, in terms of its skeletal maturity, it's a relatively young animal. It's a young adult, and it doesn't show any of the features that the really old, mature T-Rex show, like they get extra holes in their heads and their tooth count really reduces quite low. And Sue's rather youthful <laughs> in contrast to them. I actually recall my first visit to see the actual skull of, T of Sue. Uh, they rolled it out of its bulletproof case. And my first impression of Sue was that despite its size, is that it's a very youthful looking animal. I was actually expecting an old face, but it's a, it's a young adult, uh, which is kind of neat. So uh, T-Rex did get almost certainly much older than 28 years old, but I have no idea of what that number is. We'll find out soon. 
Really? Oh, that's exciting. We'll look forward to it. Yeah, so this other team is hopefully we'll be sampling more mature animals, and we'll see. Do we know anything about sexual dimorphism? Do we know Sue is a Uh, female? No. My own work uh, does not show that T-Rex was dimorphic skeletally. Um, There's just no evidence that I've ever seen that you can just eyeball a T-Rex and identify it as male or female. Both males and females went through the same fundamental growth changes. However, uh, that doesn't mean that Sexual dimorphism wasn't present in, say, the skin. You know, maybe um, males were brightly colored and females were done like modern birds. Um, That could be a possibility. That's something it just doesn't preserve. So it could be that soft tissues like that would have marked a male or a female. The only way to sex a rex or any advanced (laughs) dinosaur is to chop open their femora, so their thigh bones. And this actually happened with a young adult T-Rex called B-Rex. It's on display at the Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman. And the story goes that the thigh bone broke when it was being collected. And uh, Dr. Mary Schweitzer noticed that the hollow interior of the thigh bone, so dinosaurs have hollow bones like birds do. Since birds are dinosaurs, that's where they got their hollow bones from. But she saw that in B-Rex, that the center of the bone wasn't hollow as it should have been. It was actually, the hollow was filled by this very chaotic-looking bony tissue. She identified that tissue as medullary bone. So what's medullary bone? Medullary bone is seen in modern birds, in female birds that are shelling eggs. These are extra stores of calcium within the hollows of bones that are used to shell the eggs. Because if they were to strip the calcium from their skeletons, you know, they'd get osteoporosis. So it looks like you can tell the sex of a T-Rex and other hollow bone dinosaurs by the presence of that medullary bone. But that limits you to identifying pregnant females because the medullary bone is absent in non-shelling females and, of course, absent from males. And I can tell you I've spent a lot of time with B-Rex and B-Rex looks no different from other T-Rexes of its maturity. So at a glance, I can't, I don't see any, anything special about B-Rex in terms of femaleness at all. What do we know about the sense, sensory capabilities of T-Rexes? I've heard their eyes were better than our eyes, but also in the movie it portrays them as only able to respond to motion. Yeah, I don't know if they could hear very well or any of their other senses were different. As I as I mentioned, their sense of touch on their face was extraordinarily sensitive. Um, crocodilians, their snouts are more sensitive than human fingertips in terms of touch and temperature, and there's no reason to think that transfers are any different. So in terms of tactile, transfers were hypersensitive like crocodilians. Transfers also have, on average, uh, slightly larger olfactory bulbs. <clears throat> These are the smelling centers of the brain. Uh, slightly larger than other meat-eating dinosaurs, so they had a fairly good sense of smell. Um, their olfactory bulbs weren't extraordinarily huge, so we're not talking about a vulture-like sensitivity, but, you know, just an edge above uh, their closest relatives. Uh, Tyrannosaur eyes were large. They probably saw in color and um, could see at distance, and that's something that we also see in birds and crocodilians, so that bracket uh, comes in again to give us a sense of 
how good transferred eyesight might have been or dinosaur eyesight in general, it would have been quite good. Uh, transfer hearing, um, also, they're quite competent at hearing. Uh, they're especially attuned to low frequencies, and that may have enabled them to locate their prey uh, just through sound. So transfers were, I guess, not, a, not just a triple but a quadruple threat in terms of its sensory equipment for hunting. And we also have to keep in mind that that hunting equipment was also used in the gentle interactions between individuals of the species. So I think it's, again, it's useful to use crocodilians as our guide in visualizing um, the senses of transfers and how they would have been deployed, both when hunting and just in the quiet moments of the day. How strong was the tyrannosaur bite? Can you look at its muscle attachments and kind of figure out how powerful it was? Yeah, there's several ways of estimating bite force in Tyrannosaurs. Effectively, uh, the numbers are broadly similar. Uh, so if you look at the punctures left in Triceratops bones, <clears throat> you get an estimate of something like from 6,000 to 13,000 newtons of force. If you just scale up from crocodiles, you get an estimate between eight and 10,000 newtons of force. So those estimates overlap. Using modern mod modeling techniques, um, the estimates are as high as 17,000 to 54,000 newtons. And their teeth were the longest teeth of any predatory dinosaurs? That's a good question. So the teeth are large, but most of the tooth is root. And that goes for the upper and lower jaws. So what we see uh, exposed from the jaws is you know, maybe a quarter or a third of the total tooth length. So effectively, that buried two-thirds or three-quarters is functionally part of the jaw. And the teeth of tyrannosaurs are thick. Uh, so they're banana-like or they're canine-like, like, uh, the canines of dogs or wolves, that sort of thing. They're fairly wide for their length. They're fairly conical and slightly curved. They're effectively penetrating fingers. Uh, so the head in tyrannosaurs is incredibly powerful, as these bite force estimates show. And what tyrannosaurs did was they used their teeth and jaws to clamp down on their prey, probably to both capture and kill the prey. So the arms wouldn't have been involved in killing, the feet wouldn't have been involved in killing. It's all concentrated at the head. And so I imagine that tyrannosaurs probably crushed uh, their prey to death across the chest. That would be probably the most effective means of killing prey fairly quickly because the predator can't afford to be hurt by thrashing prey. So. The length of the tooth is only part of the story. Um, those teeth have to withstand not only the forces of the bite of the T-Rex itself, but also has to survive the, you know, the struggles of the prey. And the shape of the teeth are, I'd say, slightly more important than the actual length. When the, a transfer's mouth is closed, most of the upper teeth almost will touch the ground. They're not quite as, as long as the lower jaw, but they're pretty close. So 
the length of the teeth causes devastating lethal trauma. So you're firmly in the camp that T-Rex was a predator, not just a scavenger. I've heard some question about that. But it sounds like from bite force, from teeth morphology, these were predators. Also, we can bring in common ancestry. The idea of T-Rex being a scavenger comes from several lines of evidence, and one of them being uh, the teeth and the high bite forces. Having those thick teeth and really high bite forces would enable T-Rex to basically bite through bone from carcasses and be able to swallow and, and eat bone. So I think that's, that's a useful idea to entertain. But when we look down the tree, the family tree of Tyrannosaurus, T-Rex doesn't differ all that much from its closest relatives. Um, T-Rex is in a size category of its own. I think that's undisputable. It is truly the largest Tyrannosaurus that we know of, and it has features related to its size that are not seen in any other Tyrannosaurus. So it's truly a unique creature. But um, in terms of the general details, it doesn't depart from the ancestral type. So it's not wildly different from other Tyrannosaurus. It doesn't show any features that would indicate that its uh, feeding behaviors were fundamentally different. I just simply don't see those. Um, but I do think that the scavenging hypothesis is useful in encouraging us as scientists to take a step back and question our assumptions and to double check the evidence to see which way it's pointing. The scavenging hypothesis has, has done that for me, but I still come around to the idea that T-Rex was fundamentally predatory like its closest relatives. And that certainly, you know, no transword would have passed up a carcass, but I don't think they were scavengers, you know, a la vultures and hyenas, that sort of thing. I do think they were active hunters. Well, Dr. Carr, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating interview. But in keeping with the show's stated goal of trying to figure out who we are, yeah. has anything you've studied in general kind of informed your opinion of who humans are? Or who do you think we are? Well, I think the answer is quite straightforward. Uh, we're just um, highly derived uh, hominids, and we happen to be the last of our lineage that's around uh, currently, and we are seen to be the agents of our own extinction. Uh, there's nothing special about uh, modern humans, aside from our consciousness, we are the only species around that does query the universe and actually gets into the weeds of understanding the origins of the universe and how life evolved. But I think answering the question is fundamentally a biological one. We can put a date on what humans are. We can actually identify the fundamental features that define us as a lineage. So, you know, we're only 300,000 years old. We have fairly large brains uh, for our lineage, and we also do things like query the universe as we do. So I think that question is, has a very straightforward answer. Uh, you just have to look at what the ancestral features are and where we fit on the primate family tree. We are apes in pants. Yes, we are. <laughs> and, and, you know, above and beyond that, as far as we know, we are the only chance the universe has to know itself. And I think that's a point that um, is very important. Uh, we, As I was mentioning earlier, we are the only species to come around in four and a half billion years on this planet, at least, to that has the ability to learn about nature and understand it on its own terms. 
and that's what makes our our species valuable and um, important. Because as far as we know, there are not consciousnesses elsewhere in our galaxy uh, that are doing this. That's not to say that that might not be happening or that it didn't happen sometime remotely in the past. But we're the only mind in town. I think that quality is what sets us apart as something special. People want to kind of follow what you're doing, what you're studying, or kind of keep up with you. How would they do that? Well, people can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Tyrannosaur Car. It's just one word. And I also have a blog, uh, which is a mouthful. It's called Tyrannosauroidea Central. So I'm a bit more active on Twitter than I am on my blog, since, simply because I have a whole bunch of research proje uh, projects on the go right now. I just cannot give time to the blog as much as I want to. I'd also like to add that if there are young people in the audience uh, in high school or even earlier than high school, I do have a post on my blog that describes the paleo track at Carthage, Carthage College. Carthage is an undergraduate institution and in biology I have a special paleontology track where I prep my students to uh, go into graduate school. Uh, so please hunt down that particular post if you're interested in becoming a vertebrate paleontologist.